This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know, from your favorite books and the world in which they live, to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story, Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on Sirius XM Book Radio Channel 80. I'm Rose Fox. I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly, bringing you the very best of book talk. We're coming to you directly from PW offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're here for you and we want to answer your questions. Send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet them to pubweeklyradio, that's pubwkly radio on Twitter. Today, we'll be talking with Robert K. Tannenbaum, a former Manhattan assistant district attorney and the author of Echoes of My Soul, a fascinating work of true crime. Then, PW Reviews editor Jasmine Chan will tell us about some useful new books for parents of older children. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. How's the uh, fiction list looking? The fiction list is looking very interesting. Uh, Obviously, still at number one, after a few weeks now, is Dan Brown's Inferno. Uh, This week, it dropped 44% from the previous week, so it had only 120,000 sales. I mean, these numbers are just just incredible. A a single book selling 120,000 copies in a week and having that be a drop of nearly 50% from the previous week is, is, uh, is pretty stunning. To put this in perspective, it sold twice as many books as the number two book on our fiction hardcover bestseller list, which is uh, the Khalid Hosseini's and the Mountains Echoed, uh, sold 62,000 copies, which would be very respectable in In any other week, except that Dan Brown is just sitting there in the top spot. Right. Right. Wow. I I have no idea how long it will take (laughs) before uh, Inferno drops off the list, but I'd guess he's got several more weeks to go. Those numbers are just incredible. That's amazing. And I think with the Khalid Hosseini, we did uh, pick that as one of our top 10 Mm -hmm. uh, a couple weeks ago. So it's, it's sitting uh, pretty nicely uh, positioned there. Yeah, but I mean, I, again, in any other week, a book like that would be number one. Right. 62,000 right. copies is really nothing to sneeze at. Mm-hmm. But it's it's just uh, you, you get someone like Dan Brown. Blockbuster even seems too mild a term. And uh, they just throw all the statistics right. for a loop. It's like Fifty Shades of Grey last right. year. And it just stayed on the bestseller list for months and months and months and months and you know now all those other authors are denied the chance to have number one bestseller after their names because they had the bad luck to publish at the same time as one of these phenomenal books yeah it's true so what else do you have on the list i mean do we have more known names we do Um, not not a lot of surprises Uh, number three a debut is uh, zero hour a novel from the numa files by clive kussler and graham brown Mm. uh when i say not a surprise i mean i was reading these books in high school (laughs) and then they had bestseller on the title at the time too so uh, clive kessler has been topping the the charts for many 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 years Um, (laughs) he knows what he's doing and he's got a whole host of co-authors out there to help him churn out these books and this one features kurt austin and his best pal joe zavala those grown-up hardy boys but uh, you know we we did review it and we said it's the usual thing uh, readers new to Custler should be prepared for zero believability. Oh, wow, <laughs> really? <laughs> well, you know, Publishers Weekly reviews are yep. honest. We yes, don't exactly. we don't pull punches. Exactly, sure. Um, but it's the 11th in the series. I don't think very many people are going to be picking this up unless they have a long airplane right, flight ahead right. of them. And number four is also a, a new title that's just out this week. Uh, Dean Kuntz, a deeply odd, an odd Thomas novel. Uh, this is the, the sixth paranormal crime novel featuring itinerant fry cook and prophetic dreamer Odd Thomas. Uh, oh. and, and this is, again, Dean Kuntz is a name that's been on the bestseller list for several decades now. Yeah. And uh, it's... Another one of his sort of paranormal, supernatural thrillers. There's an aspect of the uncanny, uh, which in this case is that Thomas can see the spirits of the lingering dead. And so he's, he's sort of going through life trying to figure out what to do with that. And he's also drawn to trouble as reliably as iron to a magnet. So uh, again, our review, not terribly complimentary. We say the farce in this novel often undercuts the terror. You know, maybe after you've written so many books, it's a little tricky to keep coming up with plausible ideas, and you just have to go further and further well, afield. What I see with both, you know, Clive Cussler and Dean Kuntz, 
as you pointed out, they've been publishing best-selling books for two decades. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious. More. 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 Exactly. Exactly. How do they keep doing it? And it's amazing that there's so many readers who are obviously buying these. And we're talking not just the same readers who first started reading them, but generations now. Mm -hmm. uh, Second, possibly third generation. Oh, probably. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm just amazed at how they, they have that sustainability. I think they give readers what they want. They deliver something very reliable. It's uh, it's like you know going to McDonald's. You know what you're going to get, and the McDonald's French fries are going to taste the same whether you're in New York or California or right. London. And it's about that consistency. It's about knowing what you're going to get. I mean, I I have not read a Clive Cussler novel in probably fifteen or twenty years, but if I pick up this newest one, I know there's going to be some adventure. And it, it's a Numa book, which I think is the the U in Numa stands for underwater, if I recall correctly. Mm, and okay. so there's going to be some diving and some ships, and uh, we say there's a volcanic island lair. Yeah, diving exploits, plenty of thugs and minions and a beautiful woman scientist in a love interest role. These are the literary equivalent of Bond movies. Mm-hmm. You know, and you, you go for the explosions and the glamour and uh, the occasional snappy line. And that's what you're going to get. And, and you the just, Bond women. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and and if that's what you're into, then that's cool. Right. You know, there's right. a never-ending supply. And the sure. same with the Dean Koontz. If you are into supernatural mysteries, then that is what you will get. And you can sort of follow along and wait and see how supernatural the mystery is. And in some ways, it's the same kind of comfort mm-hmm. read as a romance novel. You know there's going to be a happy ending right. in, in some way. I mean, not always, you know, an, an unfettered happy ending. In one of the previous Odd Thomas books, uh, you know, he'd found the love of his life and then she died and he couldn't save her even with all of his skills. So there's some emotion there. There's some pathos. Right. But for the most part, you're just going to get a reliable ride to a, an ending that you find more or less satisfying in the context of the book. I'm Mark Rotellin. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Right now, Rose and I are going down our uh, bestsellers list uh, for next week, powered by Nielsen Book Scan. And what else do you have on the list? Do you have another fiction title? I have a couple more, actually. Um, I just wanted to talk about two books that did get uh, complimentary reviews, or actually three of them on on our fiction list. Uh, Number 11 is Philip Meyer's The Sun. Uh, I will just read you a few excerpts from the Publishers Weekly Review. In chronicling the settlement and scourge of the American West from the Comanche raids of the mid-19th century into the present era, Meyer never falters. Uh, This novel speaks volumes about humanity, our insatiable greed, our inherent frailty, and the endless cycle of conquer or be conquered. Uh, And his character's successes and failures serve as a constant reminder, as he says in the book, there is nothing we will not have mastered except, of course, ourselves. Mm. Uh, So this is a a really fascinating uh, sort of set of remembrances of various different types of people growing up in the American West. Uh, uh, The first white male who's born in a newly founded Texas who is Mm. then captured and raised by Comanches, uh, his son and his great-great-granddaughter in the present day. So it's a really interesting kind of look back at what shaped the West, the interactions between the colonizers, the invaders, Mm -hmm. uh, and the natives, and how those still play out in what's happening today. And it it seems that the author... uh didn't take a traditional approach to telling about the West and its formation, but really looked at it deeply in, in telling this novel. I mm-hmm. mean, differently. I mean, there there were no, as I think as you mentioned, traditional heroes is what we think right. of, of those who settled in this book. And no no real villains, and, and perhaps all of the characters involved have a little bit of both. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And everybody in it is very human, and it's, right. it, it's talking about the shared humanity in all of its glories and failures among both, the, again, the, the mm-hmm. natives and the settlers. We gave it a starred review, um, and so it's really, really worth checking out. Number 16 on our fiction list is Looking for Me by Beth Hoffman. It's a delightful character piece mm-hmm. for a lazy day, says the PW Review, right, one of those right. great summer books. And uh, the readers may question certain plot turns, Less plausible moments won't detract too much from the enjoyment of this novel about a woman putting the pieces of her family secrets together. And this is another regional book. It's, uh, it's set in the South. Real Southern charm uh, with rural Kentucky and uh, an antiques shop in Charleston and mm-hmm. all of that sort of summer sunshine 
in the south and right, so right. that's for people who like to travel without leaving their homes oh fantastic great and finally at number 25 uh, another starred review for a conspiracy of faith by Juicy Adler Olsen and it's translated from the Danish by Martin Aitken I love translated books I, I think it's wonderful that we can get so much translated fiction that's translated into English obviously right. books in English are often translated into other languages but it's really nice to see some some books coming back and making the the return journey and this is a quite a thriller and it's a, a powered by a cold 14 year old murder arson case uh, and features crotchety Copenhagen deputy detective superintendent Karl Mork and it's right. just you know, a really powerful thriller it's heart-wrenching and Literally, there is something rotten in Denmark. In right. this case, it's Denmark's welfare state. Uh, it's an interesting examination of present-day concerns. Mm -hmm. Wow. And, and this seems to be, I mean, of the books that we uh, have been seeing in translation, especially with thrillers or mysteries, mm -hmm. it seems to be trends coming from Scandinavia. That's right. I mean, after Stieg Larsson's right. um, success, a lot of people wanted to find the next girl who kicked the hornet's nest. Right. And yeah. Yeah, this may be one of them. I, we again, we gave it a starred review. We said it's very, very good, and uh, right. it lands right at the midpoint of our bestseller list at number twenty-five. Nice. So, it'd be interesting to see whether word of mouth helps to power it up the charts, right. uh, or whether it trickles back down in the weeks sure. to come. Sure. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And Mark, what do you have for us on the nonfiction bestseller list? I have to say, one of the most surprising things about our nonfiction bestseller list is the fact that, at least in the top twenty, not a new title to be found. Wow. Yes. And what's even more surprising is that the top eleven titles have pretty much all kept the same slot as they did from last week's okay and it's kind of interesting so we've got phil robertson who has this book called happy 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 and uh it's my life and legacy as the duck commander this is based on an uh, a and e oh right uh, we show. were talking about that we talked about ago. this before now this is the third week in number one nothing has bumped it off mm -hmm. nothing has come in and uh, you look at the book, and it's got this uh, and kind of like old lettering uh, with a man with a long gray beard, a bandana, sunglasses. And, and this is something about how as a duck hunter, it just has made his life, you know, given his life meaning. So the next one we have is Sheryl uh, Sandberg's Lean In. Mm -hmm. And then we have Phil Jackson's Eleven Rings. We're talking about uh, basketball. And David Sedaris, Let's Explore Diabetes. And this was number five last week. It's crept up just a little bit to uh, number four, his humor book. Mm -hmm. And then we have uh, Bill Riley, uh, Keep It Pithy, also at number six. The Guns uh, at Last Light, this is Rick Atkinson's book. And two weeks ago, we'd select this as uh, being on our top ten. And it's still there at number seven, the same position it was last week. And then we have at number 11, It's All Good. This is Gwyneth Paltrow's right. uh, lifestyle cookbook. This book is still holding strong, number 11. So uh, her fans and readers are still buying it. I was looking at the cookbook list, actually, and it looked like one barbecue book after another, which is how you know it's summer. Exactly. And they all come out at the same time. And they come out appropriately the week of memorial day mm -hmm. and just when everyone wants to start stoking up the grill so yeah you're going to find a lot of books right about then well we have a, a little bit of time if we could maybe look at next week's list oh sure so Happy to um, get back in the groove of our you know I, i'm going to call just one and this one is called boys in the boat non-americans and their epic quest for gold at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. This is by Daniel James Brown. The publisher's coming out, Viking, with 100,000 copies of this. It'll land in our top 20. I mean, readers like World War II yep. era. And, and this is a little bit before, but it leads into it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Olympics and sports. And I, I think this is going to be a pretty solid seller. And Chuck Todd's got a book about President Obama. And we have uh, Doc uh, about Dwight Gooden. Mm -hmm. It's going to be another one, uh, sports books, especially one with, with a big name like Dwight Gooden, especially this time of year as we're getting into summer. People are going to want to read a little bit about him. 
Well, on the fiction, um, The Shining Girls is coming out from Mulholland Books. It's by Lauren Bukes, who's a wonderful South African writer. Mm-hmm. Um, she started out in science fiction, which is why I know her name. And this is her first right. mystery thriller title, though it's got a time travel aspect. It's about a serial killer who travels through time. And he, he will take uh, artifacts from, from each person he kills and then go to another time and leave them behind. So it's completely baffling. Wow. And I've heard her describe how she wrote it with, you know, colored string on the board over her desk so that she could keep track of all the timelines. But this is getting a lot of buzz. And wow, it's getting great. buzz among her science fiction fans as well as among mystery and, and thriller fans. Uh, we, we thought the book was great. It's really excellent book. So uh, 75,000 copies are being printed of that. And it came out June 4th. Uh, so this will be its first week. I'm going to bet that that's going to be in top 20. I'm going to be a little conservative. But I think it's actually, it might even end up in the top 15. Well, I look forward to next week then. And uh, the other one I'm noticing is Nalini Singh's 12th Psy Changeling mm-hmm. book. Um, she's uh, just a superstar of paranormal romance, and her books are consistently bestsellers. I would probably put that in the top 10. Again, you know, pending Dan Brown, I, f- I feel like you know, between right. Dan Brown yeah, and Khalid right. Husseini, I, I should get like plus or minus two <laughs> on all of these. Uh, a little handicap, yeah. Um, yeah, a little, a little bit. Um, but, you know, Berkeley is printing 50,000 right. copies of that. They're expecting it to do well. Um, she made the jump to hardcover in this series with, I think, the sixth book, and they just, they just keep coming out. I know I send them out for review to the same reviewer mm-hmm. every time, and she is always so excited. Oh, oh, it's the new Nalini Singh. So, um, and that's another uh, writer from outside the U.S. Uh, she's of Indian descent, and she lives in New Zealand. You know, she's she's found real success here, and I think that's just going to be another popular book. Certainly, her books continue to be terrific. Right. So, that's that's my guess. Sounds great. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Robert K. Tannenbaum will tell us about the quest for legal justice that led him to write Echoes of My Soul. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Robert K. Tannenbaum in our office studio with us. He's a former Manhattan assistant district attorney and the author of a number of legal thrillers. We invited him in to talk with us about Echoes of My Soul, a work of narrative nonfiction that discusses a very interesting legal case and a quest for justice. Thanks so much for joining us, Robert. Thank you very much for having me. Your book, Echoes of My Soul, is your third nonfiction book and follows a murder trial in 1963. Could you tell us about it? Well, on August 28, 1963, the same day, coincidentally, Martin Luther King was in Washington, mm-hmm. a cat burglar broke into an apartment. When I say cat burglar, the derivation of it is exactly what happened in this case. The killer saw an open window in the courtyard. He knew the building, he knew the area. He had, by his own comments and admissions, burglarized about 100 apartments in that area, in that neighborhood on East 88th Street, right uh, in between Madison and uh, Park. Mm-hmm. He stood in the courtyard, he looked up, he saw the open window in the kitchen of the third floor, apartment 3C at 57 East 88th Street. He went up the service stairway, he lifted the window of the service stairway right beside in close proximity to the open window in the kitchen. It was a hot August day. He stepped out on the ledge and leaped in to the apartment. That's the cat burglar nature of this. Mm-hmm. He was in the apartment. He saw Janice Wiley, who was naked in bed. He raped her. Her roommate, Emily Hoffett, came back 10.30 in the morning, and then he panicked and uh, murdered both of them brutally, almost decapitated Emily Hoffett, and uh, disemboweled, basically, and carved up Janice Wiley and mm. fled. Oof. That aspect of it, I don't say just for shock value, but became an important evidentiary issue in the case. He then fled and went to his cellar of narcotics uh, on the east side, right by the river, and told him what he had done. He also mentioned to him that there was a terrible, mephitic-type odor in the room, and that had to do with the disemboweling of the cutting of the intestines with the gases that were emitted from the deceased which was a very important issue in the case because it was never mentioned in any police report. Mm -hmm. And the only people who knew about it were the medical examiner, assistant district attorneys, John Keenan, now federal district court judge John Keenan in Manhattan, and my bureau chief in the Homicide Bureau, Emil Glass, assistant district attorney, who breaks open this case post-indictment. And that is to say, eight months after the murders, a young man, George Whitmore, is arrested in Brooklyn. Now, keep in mind, I grew up in Brooklyn. We would go to see my grandparents in Manhattan for uh, a Shabbat dinner every uh, Friday, Saturday night when 
every week, basically, we would say we're going to the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason I mention that is the Brooklyn cops in Kings County, Brooklyn, are very much in, in competition with everything in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And so they arrested George Whitmore for an attempted rape on the street. Uh, it was a show up a couple of days after this woman was attacked at one o'clock in the morning. And they just brought Whitmore into the precinct uh, based upon an interview he had with a police officer uh, who chased the, the attacker that night uh, at one o'clock in the morning. And that same morning of that attack, which was two days before Whitmore was brought into the station house, which was eight months after the murders in Manhattan. At 7 o'clock in the morning, the same police officer who saw the attacker on the street, he was doing a foot patrol midnight to 8 tour, saw Whitmore alone in a laundromat at 7 a.m. And he asked Whitmore what he was doing there. He didn't recognize him in the neighborhood. And Whitmore told him, I'm, I'm just here waiting for my brother. We're going to go to work at Schoenfeld's factory. And the police officer recognized that Whitmore appeared to be a very harmless person, just as he, he is in life and was at that time. And Whitmore, when the police officer said, thank you, have a good day, just was leaving the the laundromat, Whitmore said to him, I know why you're questioning me. And the police officer turned around and said, what do you mean? And he said, because I saw you chasing that bad guy who who attacked that woman earlier in the morning. And the police officer then asked him what he knew about it, and Whitmore sort of was, uh, you know, simply telling him as an observer what he saw. That police officer then went to the homicide detectives in, in Brooklyn at the same station house in Bedford-Stuyvesant, and the two days later, the, those two detectives basically uh, brought Whitmore back to the station house. They brought the victim on the street for a show-up. Mm-hmm. She was unsure if that was the attacker. She never got a good look at his face. He attacked from the rear, said to her, I'm going to rape you and kill you, started dragging her away, and the police officer heard her screams. She then said, though, to the detectives, tell him to say, I'm going to rape you and kill you, and Whitmore did. When he said that, she said, that's definitely him. They then questioned Whitmore for hours and hours, he finally confessed, based upon the leading nature of the questioning, or the worst kind of procedure you do when you question anyone, whether it's a witness or, or the accused. You want to get a narrative. You want to know what they know, right. not what you're telling them. You know, yes or no answers with everything else that goes into those leading questions. And Whitmore was a very suggestive kid. He had a very, very, very violent father. That's what he was doing in Bethesda-Stuyvesant. Uh, he lived in Wildwood, New Jersey. And uh, his mother, uh, in one of the episodes, the violent episodes with his f- very violent father, uh, she lost an eye, and when things got very rough, she would take George Whitmore and his younger brother and sister to her sister's house in Bethesda, and he would sleep basically in the hallway. So he didn't know how to get to Manhattan from Brooklyn. Uh, from, so he goes from the Jersey Shore into into Brooklyn. And after they questioned him about the attempted rape, they questioned him about a murder in Brooklyn that happened a week before with the same M.O. Whitmore ultimately confesses to that case as well. Then the detective who was one of the leading homicide detectives in Brooklyn, who was on the Interborough Task Force that was formed after Wiley and Hoffett were murdered on August 28, 1963, in their apartment at 10.30 a.m. He was part of that Interborough Task Force because the police recognized it was probably a burglary that, that was nightmarish outrage resulting from it. But this detective, Bulger, stayed for about three months. He wanted to solve this case. He was obsessed with it. And guess what happens? On this Friday, when Whitmore is now has been brought in, confessed to these two crimes in Brooklyn, totally unrelated to the Manhattan murders of Wiley and Hoffett, in his wallet is a photograph, uh, which I put into Echoes of My Soul. And the photograph depicts two girls. One, the most prominent, is a blonde seated on the back of a car. Mm-hmm. And Detective Bulger says, oh, my God, that's Janice Wiley. I want to question him. And he asks Whitmore, where'd you get that photo? And Whitmore says... I got it in the garbage dump in Wildwood, New Jersey, where I, where I live. And he is a picker in the, in the garbage dump. Interestingly, his mother had told him, don't go to the garbage dump and pick anything, because if you find anything of value, some white person will probably say it's theirs, and they'll claim you stole it. Please don't do it. But George had a, he was a very, very, very uh, imaginative young man. He was a good artist, and he had a good memory. He also had an IQ somewhere south of 70, according to the Bellevue doctors who examined him for over six months. And he uh, wrote on the back of it, to George from Louise because he wanted to show his friends that this was a girlfriend of his. Right. Detective Bulger and Detective DePrima then questioned him. The questioning in total from the time Whitmore went into the station house was approximately 17 hours. Wow. And he then confesses to the Wiley-Hoffitt case. Mm-hmm. Then uh, Whitmore is indicted in Brooklyn on the unrelated murder case in Brooklyn, the one that happened about a week before the, the street assault on this young woman. And uh, he was indicted on that case as well for attempted rape. And then he was indicted in Manhattan on the Wiley-Hoffitt case. Two months later, Mel Glass, who was an assistant district attorney, reopened the case. He went to Frank Hogan, district attorney, 
uh, who was totally apolitical. I worked in that office. My mentor was uh, Mel Glass in the criminal courts. Mel then became a Supreme Court judge for over 20 years and at the end of his career. And then, of course, I was sent to John Keenan, who was my bureau chief in the Homicide Bureau. And the reason I mention John Keenan is because he ultimately tries the case against the killer. And what Mel does, he presents this to District Attorney Hogan. This is an, an example, in my judgment, I know it because I worked there, that it was a totally political merit system. And he ran the Ministry of Justice. This was the biggest case in the media from inception right through. And as soon as Whitmore got arrested and indicted on this case, the press immediately called him the Brooklyn Psycho. Right. Mel Glass reopened the case, investigated it, went to the district attorney. District attorney didn't say thank you very much. He was going to bury this case because it was a major mistake. We don't go around indicting the wrong people. That's not what Hogan did. He admitted he made the mistake. He was prepared to fracture his reputation in legend because it was simply wrong to indict a kid. And this is like the worst case scenario, isn't it, for political types. He was an impoverished kid with an IQ somewhere south of 70. And Hogan exonerated him. Mel found the two girls in the photo in New Jersey. He then finds the real killer. And the trial, which was fascinating about this story, and I have the original transcripts from this stuff that's never been revealed before. John Keenan, brilliant trial lawyer. I've gone around this country trying cases. I've tried hundreds of cases. John Keenan is the finest trial lawyer I've ever seen, my mentor. And John Keenan and Mel Glass had to cross-examine the Brooklyn detectives at the trial of the murderer because they were giving a complete defense to the murderer. They didn't want to admit they made a mistake with Whitmore, and they were claiming Whitmore was still the killer. Fascinating, uh, absolutely incredible, but that's, uh, that's what happened here. I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with author Robert Tannenbaum about his uh, new book, Echoes of My Soul. This is really amazing. This is fascinating stuff. Now, if I'm not mistaken, this is before the Miranda rights. Yes, absolutely. Could you tell us the significance of that in relation to the case? One of the reasons why I say this is the most important case coming out of Manhattan, it not only demonstrates the Ministry of Justice that was was, uh, engaged in by District Attorney Frank Hogan and and worked out and made real by people like Assistant D.A. Mel Glass and John Keenan and certainly others, is that this case was cited by Chief Justice Earl Warren of the United States Supreme Court when he wrote the Miranda opinion. He cites this case of the innocent young man, George Whitmore, who winds up confessing to crimes he did not commit. I'm sorry, the Miranda opinion is the precursor to the Miranda law. No, within the Miranda opinion is, good point, Sometimes we in this business, you know, shorthand everything. <laughs> but I know it's Greek to most. <laughs> and uh, the Miranda rights come from the Miranda opinion. That is to say that Chief Justice Earl Warren, who was a very tough prosecutor in Alameda County, California, and for everybody else other than those uh, who lived or live in Alameda County, that's the East Bay of San Francisco. It's Oakland, Emeryville, Berkeley. I went to college and law school at Cal at Berkeley. And uh, it's a very tough area. And he then became Attorney General of the State of California. And of course, he became Governor of the State of California before he was uh, Chief Justice. So he understood the abuses that could take place in a station house where you have uh, custodial interrogation, uh, where it's very coercive. It, it, it's coercive to the extent based upon the subjective nature of someone who is being questioned, who very well may be innocent. But you're, un- you're undergoing a very, very serious process, particularly when they're questioning you about murder cases, and particularly when you're innocent. So... Uh, And if we stand for anything as Americans, which I think we can believe, is that the one thing we care most about is our freedom. That was the whole nature of our revolution. It was just a revolution going from government A to government B. It was getting rid of an oppressive government that denied us our freedom. And that's the nature of being an American. So what Chief Justice Earl Warren said was he, he, he knew very well what those Bill of Rights meant. And he very much, why I think he's one of the greatest chief justices, but what he did was he made real the Bill of Rights. What do I mean? Before he did Miranda, he came down with Gideon V. Wainwright in 1962. That meant that indigents now had to have lawyers. Could you imagine trying someone without a lawyer? It would be as if you go to your mother's house for a dinner on Friday night. She says, what kind of week did you have as a prosecutor? Do you tell her I prosecuted several different individuals for various crimes? Uh, well, how were the defense attorneys? Ma, they had none. What do you mean they had none? How can you try a case without a defense attorney? It's not fair. And, and your mother would be right, just as generally she always is. So uh, <laughs> what, what Chief Justice Earl Warren said in the Fifth Amendment, he said, you know what? The Fifth Amendment in substance is a due process amendment. What I mean to say by that is 
Not only does it say nobody shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process, it says nobody should be compelled to give evidence against himself. So what Warren said was, well, we have to have warn people of what their rights are. They don't know. The average Joe on the street doesn't know about the Fifth Amendment right not to be compelled to give evidence. So I'm going to put this into the opinion. You have the right to remain silent. These are the Miranda rights. That means you don't have to answer any of my questions. Do you understand? You have the right to an attorney now to consult with before you answer any questions, if you choose to. And if you can't afford a lawyer, we'll provide one for you free of charge. Those are the kinds of Miranda rights. Anything you say, by the way, if you do say it, can and will be used against you in court. And that's when I say it's a due process Fifth Amendment case. It's not a Sixth Amendment right to counsel case. It's a Fifth Amendment due process fairness doctrine. And that's what Earl Warren did brilliantly. And he cites this case, the case in Echoes of My Soul, the Wiley Hoffett case. So you said that you, you were working in the same office as the prosecutors who worked on this case. Is that, that's how you encountered it? Did oh, I, well, no, 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 not at all, not at all. I came into the office several years later. Uh-huh. And like most people, young people particularly, you know, it's always the here and the now and the tomorrows. What happened yesterday, years ago, is ancient history. You might as well be talking to me about Antietam and the Civil War or Guadalcanal, bless those Marines in, at that time in that theater of war. But we never really discussed this case. It was always the training, the intense training, and to do the right things and, and understanding what the real role here of the DA is. This is not just conviction-oriented. The role, the two major roles really are exonerate the unjustly accused. We're not a dumping ground for police cases. You don't just get a file from a police officer. God bless them, doing a tough job, most of them, uh, and doing it well. But you want to make sure that there's a qualitative analysis that this person who's accused, is, there's factual guilt. You've got to be 1,000% sure the defendant is factually guilty. Uh, if not, you go to the next case. There were 250 new cases coming in every day, basically, into the Manhattan DA's office. At the time, I was there, and then I became bureau chief of the criminal courts. 150 from 9 a.m. approximately to 5 p.m., and then night court seven days a week, arraigning from 7 p.m. to 1 a.m. approximately, give or take hours in between. Another 100 cases come in. So you want to be factually convinced of the defendant's guilt. And secondly, you must have legally admissible evidence to convict beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, there's a difference. You could have had trustworthy, legitimate evidence, relevant, important, uh, prejudicial to the defendant's case, but it was improperly obtained. For example, hypothetically, you should have had a, war- a search warrant. Didn't mm-hmm. get it. Or you may have had a legitimate statement from the uh, defendant. It was voluntary. It was incriminating. But you should have Mirandized him. Should have given those warnings. That's what Earl Warren said. Isn't that wonderful in the system, by the way? When he, for example, in 1954, decided Brown v. Board of Education overruled Plessy v. Ferguson of 1896, I believe it was, that said separate is equal. And, of course, in Brown v. Board of Education, Warren said in 1954 through the court, separate is not equal. And you know what? That's the nature of our system. Supreme Court speaks, we listen, and we do what they say. And that's the unique part of uh, the whole uh, republic we live in. So what led oh, you to okay, yeah, pick let me, this I just got a long-winded answer there. <laughs> that's all How right. How unusual for me. And uh, what happened was my, my, uh, I remained very, very friendly and close to um, my bureau chiefs and my mentors. And after all these years, I received a telephone call from Mel Glass, who, as I mentioned, uh, not only became the youngest bureau chief in Frank Hogan's office as district attorney for 32 years, but thereafter he became a Supreme Court judge, criminal court judge and a Supreme Court judge for 20 years. Uh, he we, we remained in touch, and he called me about four or five years ago, and he said he wanted me to write this book. I said, why? He was always very much never accepting any praise in the media, never seeking it. As a matter of fact, when the verdict came in in this case, in December of 1965, the murders were August 28, 63. Whitmore gets uh, locked up in April of 64. He's indicted, exonerated during the summer of 64 by Mel Glass's investigation. In December of 65, one of the most famous of magazines offered Mel Glass $150,000 to tell the inside story, which is now echoes of my soul. He wouldn't take it. He was making about $25,000 a year, somewhere between twenty and 25000 a year, Married with two children at the time. His third child had not yet been born. And he wouldn't take it because in his mind it would be capitalizing on doing his job. As he said, I'm not going to get extra pay. If I want extra pay, you know, maybe District Attorney Hogan. I won't, I won't say no to District Attorney Hogan if he wants to give me a bonus. But, <laughs> right. but I'm not going to take it from a magazine person uh, or, you know, a corporation. So he called me and said he wanted to do it. And I said, you, Mel, of all people, want to do this? He said, absolutely. I said, why? He says, I want the truth out in this case. Mm. I want the people to know what happened. And I want DAs to know what was involved. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I think what's most important about that statement to me, and he had original documents, we had the, he had the transcripts, and about 3,700 pages of trial transcript and so on. I, I thought about this. This is my 27th book. My first one, as you mentioned, Badger the Assassin, was one of my cases uh, that came, that book was published in May of 79 mm-hmm. by the great Henry Robbins, who was um, a legendary publisher and a former juror of mine, interesting. That's another story. And that's another story right, from what exactly. I hear. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, what happened... Um, was I thought about this, and really, I, I understood why Mel wanted to do this. This was not a self-aggrandizing account, uh, notwithstanding the fact that he should be glorified, and he is glorified. And it's not just about the brilliance of John Keenan, uh, which comes charging out of the pages uh, based upon the transcripts, really, uh, of what he said and did during the cross-examination of these detectives, which is incredible. Uh, but it, it demonstrates how you can determine which is very important for all of us. How do you determine when a witness is telling you the truth? How do you determine when a defendant who is confessing is telling you a trustworthy narrative? And you learn that when you read this book in the dramatic portrayal. It's not a polemic in any stretch of imagination. It's very much a dramatic, tempestuous revelation of a case that engages in the kinds of garish confrontations that we had in the courtroom where NYPD people are saying, instead of working with the DA and trying to tell the truth about what happened, that's tough enough. But here they were saying, hey, guess what? I'm not going to let you let anyone know I made a mistake in this case, the Brooklyn detectives. We're going to say that Whitmore is guilty. You got the wrong guy. And the other aspect of this is, is that one person can and still can make a difference. Search for truth. Mm-hmm. Say it. Don't just sit there and say, I don't know. I can't think of it. I'm recused right now. My mind shut down. It's a trust we have when we serve in the government. I don't care whether you're a liberal, Democrat, a conservative, Republican, an independent, middle-of-the-road person. What we want is the truth. The best thing I think we can do in government when we serve is not to have the bill of particulars that we all agree to. And if there's one that we don't, the other person's a bum kind of thing. Enhance the dignity of the office. And by doing that, you make a mistake. It was made in good faith. We all make mistakes. Admit to it. Correct it. And the other aspect is, how do you run this ministry of justice? What is that? How do you do it? Read Echoes of My Soul and you'll know how. We've been talking with Robert Tannenbaum. You can find Echoes of My Soul, his latest book, in stores right now. Robert, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate it. Really lovely to have you here. Thank you very much. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Reviews editor Jasmine Chan will tell us about some interesting new books that offer useful advice to parents of older children. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. And today, Reviews editor Jasmine Chan is here to tell us about some interesting new books about raising older children. Thanks for joining us, Jasmine. Some of the titles for the summer that you should look out for. Um, one is already out that came out in May from DeCapo. It's called Learning to Listen, A Life Caring for Children. And it's a memoir by the influential pediatrician T. Barry Brazelton, who's known from his book and TV show, What Every Baby Knows, from several decades ago. The book covers his childhood in Texas, his early years of study, his interest in combining pediatrics and psychiatry, and the way he developed the neonatal behavioral assessment scale, which is now the gold standard of infant assessment. Brazelton was one of the first to question medicating mothers during childbirth and thus influenced the natural childbirth movement. We called the memoir engaging and said that it's written with warmth and humor. So this is a this is a memoir, not so much a how-to. It's not a how-to, but I think people would be interested in it because he's he's such an influential voice in pediatrics. Does he talk about being a parent as well? Is he a parent? Or he's really just talking about it from the medical side of things? I think he also reflects on his family life, mm-hmm. like growing his, his life as a son and as a father. Cool. Coming out this month are um, a few different titles. The first one is the Everyday Parenting Toolkit, the Kasdan Method for Easy, Step-by-Step, Lasting Change for You and Your Child from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. This one is by 
Yale University's psychology professor and child psychiatrist, Alan Kasten. It's a guide for managing behavioral problems. So there are some big promises here. And Kasden directs the Yale Parenting Center, and he is promoting a science-based method focused on what he calls the ABCs. The A stands for antecedents, which is what comes before a behavior occurs, behavior and consequences. Mm -hmm. So according to Kasdan, what parents do before the desired behavior, such as offering a choice or speaking in a pleasant tone, will affect the outcome. And he thinks that punishment is wildly overrated. I recall that our reviewer noted that parents who favor a much more um, discipline-heavy approach may find his, his suggestion surprising. So he says that punishment only works when it's paired with positive reinforcement and when the punishment is mild. So you're talking about offering choices. So saying something like, you know, do you, uh, do you want to keep having your tantrum or do you want to go home kind of thing? Or what, what kind a, of choices are we looking at? I have a feeling it's probably more measured because uh-huh. <laughs> he's, I mean, he's coming from a, a research background. So I, I don't think it's do you want to keep having the tantrum or, or do you want to stop? Mm-hmm. Well, I've seen, and, and some of the books that I've, I've seen both as a uh, uh, former review editor for parenting books, but also as a parent, I've been seeing a lot of these books that have been coming out talking, you know, it's trending away and it has been for a few years uh, against punishment and instead positive reinforcement. And with, with certain kids, punishment doesn't seem to work and in fact it seems like with many kids punishment isn't a way to really uh learn you know long term behavior so so this is interesting he's coming at it from a scientific approach right now i'm sorry who's the author again um his name is alan kasdan so it's the book is promoting the kasdan method and and so what else do you have So another how-to book is The Parent Backpack for Kindergarten through Grade 5, How to Support Your Child's Education and Homework Meltdowns and Build Parent-Teacher Connections. This one is from 10 Speed Press um, by the author M.L. Nichols. I found this one kind of surprising because in the generation I grew up in, there was no email and there was no emailing between teachers and parents. There were mm-hmm. just just the meetings, <laughs> right, right. an occasional phone call if things went really wrong. Right. But now <laughs> apparently there are guidebooks for how to communicate with your child's teacher. So ML Nichols directs the nonprofit parent education group, The Parent Connection. So the book has practical advice on issues such as selecting a kindergarten program to how to write appropriate emails to your child's teacher. So these are very new generation issues. And there are top takeaways at the end of each chapter and sample scripts for how to interact with teachers. I imagine these are potentially thorny issues these days. (laughs) It sounds like so much more work for teachers. I mean, doctors are finding the same thing that if patients expect the doctors to communicate by email, they also expect it to happen for free. And the doctor's spare time, which doctors like teachers don't have a lot of. So do you really think teachers are expected to just email parents all night after teaching their kids all day? Well, I, I've heard from some teacher friends that there are many emails from parents. Hmm. So I would imagine it depends on the kind of school and the kind of sure. culture the school mm-hmm. has. But it, it does sound like teachers are expected to be on call after hours. God, that's and, exhausting. And that, and that parents... Wow have a lot to say about their child's education. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with PW Reviews editor Jasmine Chan about parenting books. So what else do you have on the list for us? There are two more that I want to tell you about. Um, One I found really interesting because it's talking about a somewhat controversial issue. This one is from Simon & Schuster from the journalist Lauren Sandler, and it's called One and Only, The Freedom of Having an Only Child and the Joy of Being One. And I think it's pretty common knowledge that there's some stigma with being an only child and some stigma for moms of only children that that they decided to only have one child and go back to pursuing their careers and the like. Mm-hmm. So, or, um, or perhaps couldn't have more. Or than perhaps one. couldn't yeah. have more. Right. Um, but people often talk about how it's good to have two so that the child won't be a lonely, maladjusted only child. Right. So this book talks about that phenomenon um, using a lot of research. So... 
Sandler is an only child and the mother of an only child. And in the book, she's struggling with whether or not to have a second baby. So the book weaves her story throughout um, while she is analyzing research about only children. So are, is it true that they, are, they turn out lonely, selfish, and maladjusted? Um, she finds that only children are not, in fact, lonelier, and they actually have mm. higher ambition, motivation, and success. And um, sadly, they may even adjust better if their parents divorce, which I guess is, really? is now something that researchers must ask about. Hmm. So she looks at a lot of the negative stereotypes and social stigmas, um, including the idea that moms with only children are selfish. But she's ultimately advocating for making choices based on the life you want. I love that people only talk about moms here, like dads had nothing to do with it. Well, I feel like a, a lot of these titles are more mom-centric. I'm pretty sure dads are involved in the child creation process somewhere along the line, even if only as donors. But I feel like dads don't get the cultural pressure. I, oh, absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely. As, like a father of an only child wouldn't necessarily hear from people, you're only having one? Right. It, it depends on the culture. I, I know that um, in a lot of Jewish communities, for example, especially the, the more conservative and orthodox, you definitely, you know, what do you mean you're only having one kid? Because yeah, there's you know, so much so much pressure in general to be parents and be parents multiple times. And also traditionally, uh, men are less apt to pick up a how-to book for uh, for parenting. It's like, well, whatever happens, happens. That's true. Well, I want to definitely have time to talk to you about a book that both moms and dads should pick up. Um, it's one yeah. that I'm really excited about. It's not coming out until August, but we've already given it a starter view, and we have a Q&A with the author that will run in our June 17th issue. So this one is called The Big Disconnect, Protecting Childhood and Family Relationships in the Digital Age, and it's coming out from Harper. So we said in our, our review that the book should be required reading for all parents, and it's by clinical psychologist Catherine Steiner Adair, who's writing with Teresa Baker. So this book is addressing through research and through um, psychologist Steiner Adair's own background, the phenomenon of parents using technology such as smartphones, iPhones, and the internet getting distracted from their children, children being exposed to this technology too early. Um, mm -hmm. She finds the digital revolution is extremely negative for parents and children. So the book is talking about the scary phenomenon as well as what parents can do. So a lot of the book is cautionary tales as well as research, but we called the book very readable given how much research there is. So I was surprised to hear that research shows that even babies can sense that their parents are distracted using the technology. And the author suggests that parents should leave technology completely out of their child's life for the first two years. So she would be wow. against the the whole Baby with the iPad thing. Right, babies with iPads oh, wow. or right. babies with the the digital screens that will occupy them during a plane ride or in a crowded restaurant. So she would actually be saying like a big no to that. But does that include things like watching television? I What's technology here? I was going to offer a tidbit from our Q&A because she okay. said, just like parents can say no to TV, they can say no to screens except for homework. And she said, there's absolutely no reason that eight-year-olds need smartphones. Mm -hmm. So I, I would imagine that she suggests limiting television consumption. But her concern in the Q&A was that in a previous generation, parents were able to control television consumption. Whereas now, if you have a child with a smartphone, you have no idea how much time they're spending on it right. or who they're talking to. And she talks about the dramatic rise in the diagnosis of ADD and ADHD. And in the Q&A, she talks about the dangerous impact on childhood development and that psychologically children are losing the ability to reflect. I thought it was very scary to hear that neurologically, she says that we do know that kids get addicted to stimulation from screens and some can't then tolerate the slow pace of reading books. Mm. So... Yeah, I, I can I can completely see that. I mean, in some of the uh, kids that I've been seeing who are addicted to theirs or their parents' smartphones with games, 
um, making that shift from 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 the smartphone to real life can be tough. Uh, it can be also tantrum inducing. <laughs> I mean, for some kids to to have their brains, certain parts of their brains go so fast and then to slow down. It's really it's really amazing. I wonder if she offers suggestions on to how you know on, on how to wean uh, kids away from it, or or at least to to maybe guide them towards other things when so many of their other kid you know other friends are uh, are, are are on technology and you know playing games and watching tv whereas this doesn't sound any different to me from having a game boy when i was a kid you remember those little, yeah, right. little portable yeah, yeah, right, nintendo right, yeah. game boys you weren't speaking to anyone on the game boy um that's true but it's it seems perfectly i most of the kids that i have known who acquired smartphones particularly um acquired disabled smartphones they're not making phone calls on them they're just using them as game boys essentially as little portable game platforms and i was going back and forth between that and reading all the time so i i think a lot of this is going to vary depending on the child and you know, maybe parents who look at this and have heart attacks and terror can relax a little bit if if their kid is not necessarily inclined to that there are always going to be some kids who you you have to tell to go and play outside and some kids who you have to tell to sit down and read one of the anecdotes from the review that i've i found kind of saddening is that the, she talks about hearing from patients who are toddlers or in grade school that they can't get their parents attention because their parents are on their iphones and it's, that's terrible. And it's it's something that I see happening even with my beloved friends who are new parents. Um, there's a lot of texting going on, a lot of use of Facebook. I wonder if one day someone will do a study on the effect on children of having their photo taken so early. Because mm-hmm. mm. all, all of my friends' children, the, even at two or three months old, they always know where the camera is. Yes. Because someone is always aiming a smartphone at them <laughs> yep. and, and has been since day one so i wonder what that's going to do to that's a good point yeah that's true (laughs) and there are are privacy concerns too you know what what if 16 year old kid is like i don't want my baby photos up on the web but it doesn't matter because they're already archived everywhere with your real name attached and Mm. i have friends who develop screen names for their kids while they were still in utero so that they would not have to put the child's legal name out there until the child was ready for it and these are all the intersection of parenting and technology is actually really complicated especially now that everything that goes online is immediately archived, searchable forever. Well, this seems like a uh, pretty fertile topic. Could you tell us the uh, name of the uh, book and the author again? The author is Catherine Steiner Adair, and the book is coming out in August from Harper, and it's called The Big Disconnect, Protecting Childhood and Family Relationships in the Digital Age. I'd imagine that she will probably be making a lot of media appearances to talk about the book. Sure. Ironically, it, it, it seems. It but seems kids like, aren't allowed to watch them. Well, <laughs> I'm sure they'll be allowed to watch them if it's on a traditional platform that their parents can control. All right. We've been talking with reviews editor Jasmine Chen. Jasmine, thank you so much for that roundup. Thank you. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Tune in next week for more excellent book talk right here on Sirius XM Book Radio, Channel 80. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.